Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Lunch Therapy. My patient today is one of the most celebrated chefs in the country, Chef Jeremy Fox, whose restaurant Rustic Canyon is where Craig, my husband, and I got engaged. He's also got a new restaurant called Birdie G's, which is named after his daughter, and he happens to be our neighbor here in Atwater Village on the east side of LA. So I sort of pressured him into coming onto the podcast and he couldn't say no, Um, and we actually have a really great session. We talk a lot about about a lot of the stuff he went through as a chef, including having a restaurant in the Napa Valley that was named the second best restaurant in the United States by the New York Times at the time, and how that actually led to him having a complete breakdown, and then how he came from that to open all the restaurants he has now. So it's a really interesting session. And while I have you, I just wanted to say, if you're not already subscribed to this podcast in iTunes, take a moment, subscribe, and while you're there, why don't you just write a nice review? You won't regret it. It's really fun to do. And if you want to see what I eat for lunch every day, uh, go on to Instagram and follow Lunch Therapy. All right, here's my session with Chef Jeremy Fox. So, okay, is Monday your normal day off? Uh, yeah, normally Sunday, Mondays. Uh-huh. Um, haven't Hasn't been super consistent lately, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, and so do you mostly, now you have like how many restaurants now? Three restaurants? Three. Okay. And they're Birdie G's is the newest one. Mm-hmm. Tallulah's and Rustic Canyon. Tallulah's and Rustic Canyon. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. And so Rustic Canyon was the first LA one? Yes. Yeah. And Rustic Canyon's been open 13 years. Oh, wow. You know, I got engaged there. Right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I mean, it was so funny because we'd been meaning to go and meaning to go. And then we went, and then it ended up being this like really special night. And it was like four or five years ago. Yeah, we got married in 2015, yeah. so maybe it was like 2014 when that mm-hmm. happened. Um, but yeah, you must have a lot of major life events happen in your restaurants, I imagine. I mean, I've had plenty of life events happen <laughs> while I was there, but yeah, not necessarily in the building. Um, so tell me more about having three restaurants now. Is that really hard to do? Um. I mean, one is hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been really, really lucky and fortunate that I have great teams at all the restaurants. So I've been able to focus um, really a lot of my time on, on Birdie G's and, um, you know, Andy at Rustic and Saw Tulas are really doing a great job and um, take care of a lot, of, take care of everything, really. Well, it's, it's interesting because this podcast is sort of about food and psychology. And I was thinking a lot about it because being a chef, I feel like you have to be very keyed into psychology because you're dealing with customers who can be difficult and have needs that aren't hard to meet. And then you're also overseeing a whole kitchen full of people and personalities and having to manage all of that. I mean, is that something that you think about or is it just sort of happened naturally? I mean, I do now. I, you know, I, I think for a long time, um, I probably wasn't really in touch with the psychology of anything. So Mm -hmm. um, I think eventually it started to see kind of the bigger picture. Do you, do you take a managerial role? I mean, when you're in a kitchen, I mean, are you, you seem like a very chill person, but do you kind of have to sort of, I'm a little different in the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I'm definitely just a lot more, uh, um, just a lot more serious and straightforward in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely have have lightened up over the years for sure. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes I think to a fault, but um, you know, it's just it's hard to just be. It's hard to be really angry um, 
when, you know, life is pretty good. So, but it's fascinating because I mean, I feel like having watched so many like TV shows about chefs and read so many books about it, it feels like there's such the classic like brigade system, the French old French way of doing it, like getting screamed at in a kitchen was just sort of par for the course, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, definitely made me stronger. But do you feel like that with all the things that are happening in our culture right now, do you think that that system is going to change all around for people? Uh, yeah, I think it's it. I think it had already started changing years ago and is, you know, changing more and more uh, just because, you know, the type of behavior that was um, uh, tolerated in kitchens isn't uh, not really tolerated in any other industry. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're not in an office just yelling at people and throwing things that uh, it doesn't really work anywhere. But in terms of mentoring people or getting people to do what you want them to do, so what is the strategy to get somebody to slice the, you know, the celery the right way or to, you know, I think showing people and 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 uh, you know, I definitely take my role as a mentor seriously, but I think it just realize that if anyone's there at work, that mm-hmm. um, they want to do a good job, they want to, they're there to learn from you, so. You shouldn't really need to to scream or yell to get your point across, and um, and if that's what it takes, it's probably not the right person or the right fit, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, having you know just been around you a little bit, I mean, I should probably say here you're also our neighbor here in Atwater Village. So I run into you walking the dog. Mm-hmm. It was actually pretty funny because I'd asked you to be on the podcast, and then I ran into you, so I got to really pressure you into doing it. Like, oh, I can't avoid this one now. <laughs> yeah, um, but I was going to say, like, I I just I find it so. I was, I was going to say that I think it's interesting because you seem like somebody that if I worked for you, I wouldn't want you not to be pleased with my work. And I, I say that not because I'd be intimidated because you'd yell at me or anything. I, just, I would just want to make you happy. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like people probably just want you to I think think well of what they do, right? Yeah, but I think that's that's the dynamic with any, I think with, you know, I always wanted to make my chef happy. I always wanted to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, I you know, I I think that's definitely true that, people want me to be happy and, yeah. and, and, you know, approve of what they're doing and tell me they did a great job and try to do that as much as possible. I mean, it's so fun to have you here because I have so many questions for you. So I feel like this is like Kathy Bates and misery. Like I'm just going to like tie you to oh. the chair and just grill you. Um, but no, just because I feel like I'm a home cook and I love to cook and I, you know, last night I made chili and I make, you know, key lime pie or whatever. But when I look at your work and I look at your cookbook, it's like that the level, the way that you think about food and the way you approach food just seems to exist on a completely different plane. And I'm so fascinated to like get into your mind a little bit. I mean, and before we even get to your lunch, which is a whole other part of this, but I wanted to even, I was just looking through your beautiful cookbook on vegetables. And, you know, I was looking at like these combinations of flavors, like, you know, white chocolate and peas and, you know, strawberry sofrito. And like, those are the kinds of things that I don't think in a million years I would ever come up with, but are you, is that something that you've always been able to do or did that happen over time? Um, I think, I think the, having the combinations work some of the time happened over time. You know, I think I always had ideas for combinations, you know, as a young cook and, you know, trying to think of something unique and even if it what didn't actually pan out to be taste, uh, to be delicious. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think the percentages kind of work in, in my favor, the, the longer I do this. Right. I mean, for me though, like the, the instinct, I mean, one of the cool things about looking at your book, I felt was like, it's not, 
the combinations you're coming up with, it's not a novelty. It's not like you're tr- trying to do this to go viral or whatever. It's, it feels very authentic. I was, though, and I didn't, so it's really, <laughs> really? really upsetting. Were you really trying to go? No. no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, you know, the idea of like, you know, like a strawberry sofrito. So for people who don't know, a sofrito is traditionally, traditionally carrots, onions, and celery, right? Mm-hmm. Olive oil, garlic, cooked down for a long time, sometimes anchovy. Yeah. And you put strawberries in there. Mm-hmm. And so like, when you come up with this idea, is it is it to try to do something different or is it to try to arrive at a new taste sensation that people have? Sometimes had? it's just kind of a light bulb that goes off because... You know, in this recipe, I'm essentially replacing tomatoes with strawberries. And um, I didn't invent that. You mm-hmm. know, one of my mentors, David Kinch, um, when I started working at Manresa, we had a, a gazpacho on the menu, but it was a strawberry gazpacho. And it was literally a gazpacho with strawberries replacing tomatoes. So mm-hmm. um, I don't feel like my idea was all that novel, but it did, did feel like it worked. And it was a, a nice homage to uh, to David, you know, at the same time. And do you find yourself, um, when you're creating, when you're coming up with stuff like this, is it, are you just walking through the farmer's market and like looking at the strawberries and be like, huh, like I want to do something with strawberries today. Maybe I'll bring those back to the kitchen. I mean, what, what, what's your, it depends venue? on the restaurant. Yeah. At Rustic Canyon, that was kind of the, the mentality there. You know, menus weren't really planned. Dishes weren't, uh, planned or formulated or conceptualized, um, it was really just kind of putting things together, most of it at the last minute, most of it trial and error, you mm-hmm. know, and tweaking things along the way. Uh, whereas Birdie G's, a lot of those dishes have been really thought about and are inspired by something very specific. So um, there is kind of a concept behind it or a, um, an inspiration that uh, is, you know, isn't necessarily um, able to be replaced by walking the market and say, I'm going to change it because it might change what the soul of the dish is. Mm-hmm. And Birdie G's is, is it sort of Midwestern food? Is that the idea? There's that's one aspect of it. It's literally all over the place. I mean, there's, there's matzo ball soup, there's relish trays that are um, reminiscent of the Midwest, but there's, you know, Italian sausage ravioli. There's, uh, you know, corned beef steak frites, wow. um, uh, you know, steak tartare toasts, it, kind of all over the place. And are these sort of personal dishes for you? I mean, do they pretty have... Much, yeah, pretty much 99% of them, if not even more, are um, tell a story, whether it's an obvious story, but it tells a story kind of in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of food telling a story, I feel like the time has come to ask you, what did you have for lunch today? I had, uh, I had a halal guys delivered. Okay. So I had um, a, uh, a beef plate, extra beef, um, and it comes with uh, rice and, and cheese and lettuce and like big thing of white sauce. And it's basically kind of like a taco salad without a taco salad. Okay. With like, you know, gyro meat. Wow. Okay. It's delicious. Now I'm really interested in this. I mean, if I had to guess what a chef eats for lunch, I, I, I imagined you like opening your refrigerator and like poaching some you know fish and a burr blanc no no okay this is what you want to eat when you're home from work oh yeah especially especially on a on a a morning off and yeah um i drop my daughter off at school i pick her up again at four so Mm -hmm. um you know it's a few hours to just kind of you know be kind of a degenerate and and lay around (laughs) for a little bit so let's talk about the halal guy so now was this the one is this in west hollywood is that where they're based out of 
I believe this one's in Glendale. It's in Glendale. So mm-hmm. you got it delivered. Now, is this a typical day off meal for you or is this something? No, you- not typical. Okay. Um, pretty rarely. Like when, um, when my wife and, and, and daughter were um, uh, away for like a week or so over the summer, there was a little bit of ordering food to go. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's really when I have no one to tell me not to. Uh, I have so many questions. Okay, so first of all, like the when you knowing that you care so much about the provenance of the food that you serve in your restaurants, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. Not to say that the halal guys don't care the same way that you care, but it does seem like a different kind of world of cooking or different. You know, for example, the meat itself. I mean, I imagine at your restaurants you're serving um, humanely raised. Sure. So do you care? I mean, so do you? Is it is it relaxing for you to be able to like turn off that switch on a day off and be able to just yeah, yeah. eat whatever? Exactly. And. You know, I still, I, I think Halal Guys is definitely on the 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 stronger end of, of what I possibly could have harmed my body with today. But um, uh, yeah, it, it is nice to just eat and, and, and not really think about that stuff sometimes and just, just go for what is going to be satisfying. Like what else would it be? Like what are some of the other things you'll order on a, on a day off? Um... I mean, I can always eat pizza, mm-hmm. but usually, usually we eat at home. Usually, um, you know, Rachel cooks or, and, yeah. and I help, I'll do knife work, things like that. But, um, you know, delivery isn't very, isn't very often. Now, Rachel, we should say like, I'm friends with Rachel too, and she's an incredible cook in her own right. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she's more of like a home cook or would you say, you know, cause she's had experience in the restaurant world, but her approach is not the same as she's an amazing chef. home cook. Yes. So what do you, how would you articulate the difference between the kind of cooking you do and the kind of cooking Rachel does? Um, I mean, honestly, the cooking she does informs a lot of what I do. Like she'll make something that's just like super delicious and simple and, and, uh, soulful. And, you know, I'll try to kind of, work that into, I'll be like, ah, oh, I should do something like that at the restaurant. Oh, really? Um, like a matzo ball soup on the birdie G's menu? Like matzo ball soup, you know. Yeah. I think I would always have, I always plan to have a restaurant with matzo ball soup, but, um, you know, her, it's based on her chicken broth, and which mm-hmm. is pretty unstoppable. How long have you guys been together? Uh, seven years. Seven years. When you yeah. guys met, had, was she nervous to cook for you the first time? I don't think so. Oh, really? No, no, she, she was, I don't think she was nervous to cook for me. Were you nervous to cook for her for the first time? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, did you, did she come into your restaurant? I mean, do you cook at home? Like, will you, will you make like a romantic dinner for two at home using the skills that you use at the restaurant? I mean, does it, does it change depending on where you are? No, I, I th- honestly, usually it, it, like, uh, I'm not home nearly as much as I'd like to be. So, uh, when I'm home, I'm not usually the one cooking, but Mm -hmm. like I said, I'll do the, I'll do the knife work and, um, help out how I can because Rachel really enjoys to do it. And, Mm -hmm. um, when I'm not working, I kind of just don't want, don't want to cook. Well, it's funny because like I, as I said earlier, like I'm a huge home cook and I love to cook at home. And so the question I get asked all the time is why don't you open a restaurant? And my answer is that anyone I know who's like worked in the restaurant industry or who works there, like it's a struggle. I mean, it just seems like one of the hardest things in the world to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're living proof. I mean, you've been through so much with the, the restaurant world and ups downs, but I don't know, we can go into all that. I mean, I know you've talked a lot on other interviews and things about, you know, 
the whole history of, of your career and how you're doing it. But for people who don't know, um, you started at, was it Ubuntu? Was that where you had your first? That was my first chef job, yes. So it was your, And it was the first place where you were in charge? Or, mm-hmm. Yes. And before that, what was the background before that? Um, I went to culinary school in Charleston, South Carolina okay. um, when I was 20. And uh, I worked in Atlanta for a few years after school and then moved to California. Ended up um, at Manresa mm-hmm. um, in Los Gatos, um, beginning of 2013. And that's um, David Kinch's restaurant. So if people are listening who haven't watched um, Chef's Table, but there's an episode about him. Mm-hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to eat there, and it was pretty extraordinary. It's an amazing restaurant. It's a lot different than when I was there. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's amazing to see how the, the kind of uh, fledgling uh, place, you know, kind of when I started there and to some extent when I left, how it has evolved into a, a Michelin three-star restaurant, you know, one of... Um, you know, best restaurants in America, the world. And, you know, it's it's great to see, you know, that evolution. And David, it's interesting because I met him at the time he was dating a friend of mine. And um, and I feel like your personality and his personality are kind of similar. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if that's... that's kind of where we, we got... We, I th- feel like we definitely spoke a, a common language and yeah. um, just kind of the way we were. Because I feel like you both have an intensity about you, but also a kindness, and it seems like it's about per- like getting people to match your level of um, perfection or perfectionism. Is that maybe not for you? But sure, you, I think that's you, part of it. And yeah. you know, I think you know, there was definitely a trust there. Like he trusted me, I trusted him. You know, I you know, so it was, it was definitely great working with him. So you were at Manresa, and then did you go from Manresa to Ubuntu? Was yes, it, and. And so it's, it's funny because like I've followed the story from afar while it was all happening because I remember, I mean, it seems like the story, if I understand it correctly, is that you were the chef at Ubuntu. It was sort of a kind of a mellow, small kind of thing. And then Frank Bruni wrote a review of it and said it was the second best restaurant in the United States. Mm-hmm. In the New York Times, he wrote this. Right. And then it kind of blew up and became like pandemonium. I mean, it, it, it was a thing. I think it was a thing. Um <laughs> You know, it's hard to say being on the inside of it. And, you know, this is kind of, this was pre-social media. So, mm-hmm. you know, things could definitely fly a little more under the radar. But right. um, it definitely felt crazy at the time. So when I've read, you know, the introduction to your book. You talk about it a little bit that, like, you he was there that night. You didn't really realize that he was there. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, like, up until that point, were you... Because I, I know that after it became incredibly stressful and difficult, but up until that point, were you satisfied? I mean, were you enjoying your time there? Um, somewhat. I mean, we had received amazing local reviews, mm-hmm. um, but it was frustrating that it still didn't translate to um, being busy. You mm-hmm. know, this was Napa in the middle of winter, so you know we were dead. Even though we were, you know, a couple months off, um, you know the the time the main food writer up in San Francisco, Michael Bauer writing a glowing review. Um, but it just kind of died down once the, once the crush was over in, um, in wine country. And like, I think maybe what I'm asking about too, is like in terms of your aspirations and what you were looking for, I mean, did you want sort of like a mellow restaurant life, like being in the Napa Valley, sort of working at a place? That was kind of the plan. You know, I, I I think, um, I felt like, uh, with vegetables, I, th- I thought I could do something different and something fun with them. And mm-hmm. um, like there was kind of a, 
the venue to do that and was given a lot of freedom to do that. Um, but you know, I was 30, 31 years old that mm-hmm. it's just didn't grasp what the possibilities were, what might happen, what did happen, how to deal with that. So, so, okay. So then Frank Bruni comes in, he writes this thing in the New York times saying it's the second best restaurant in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then how quickly did it just go off the rails? Uh, it really quickly, you know, with, within, uh, probably a week, week and a half of that, um, I mean, I was named a, a San Francisco Chronicle Rising Star. I was named a Food and Wine Best New Chef. All within, like, between that article starting and and being named a Food and Wine Best New Chef, that was three weeks, mm-hmm. and that was from a dead restaurant to uh, a way too busy restaurant in the span of a couple of weeks with all these accolades. So it was a lot all at once. And in terms of like understanding, because I think for some people. The idea of like too much success is a hard thing to wrap your head around, you know, because obviously like I mean, most people you know, seek, seek out a career in something, you want to achieve huge success. But what I'm curious about is like, when did it tip over from being exciting and sort of a dream come true to this is overwhelming and I can't handle this? Fairly quickly, because I think if you if you think about it, whether, you know, if you're in if you make a movie mm-hmm. that gets amazing reviews, mm-hmm. the movie's done. Right. Uh, you don't have to keep redoing the menu. You don't have to keep redoing the movie over and over and over right. again. Like you've made the movie, you've made the album. You have to live up to the expectations. You've, you've painted the painting. Uh-huh. It's done. Mm-hmm. So to have a restaurant be given kind of, uh, to achieve that, that kind of attention, mm-hmm. it's not done. It's yeah. barely started at that point. So, then it's the it's the grind to maintain and to um, deliver on expectations mm-hmm. um, and and to keep kind of uh, you know delivering and exceeding expectations on a um, extended basis. And were these was this criteria or like were you were you the one pushing yourself to keep doing that? I mean, was that was yes. that coming from you? Yes, right. You know, I think in my mind it was what the world and everyone was telling me I had to do, but mm-hmm. it was really me. So I, one of the beautiful things I think about your story, at least from my perspective, again, like from a distance, is that, you know, you had this experience at Ubuntu, it kind of blew up and then you kind of, you know, you, you had to sort of leave and start, but then you started again here and you built this whole other restaurant culture for yourself. And what I'm curious about is specifically with Rustic Canyon, what were the lessons that you learned from what happened with Ubuntu that allowed you to open Rustic Canyon and do it in a way that you would be much more comfortable with? I mean, I think pretty much every, <laughs> at every turn, you know, when I started Rustic Canyon, I would, you know, encounter things to where um, I had to make decisions and I pretty much just did the opposite of what I normally would have done. <laughs> What's an example that like, like what? Um, I think just in terms of, uh, working with people and, you know, creating a team. And um, that was something that was, I really kind of wanted to prove to myself was to um, build something again and have it not just be, not just be me, like Mm -hmm. to have people around me who are, um, who are, uh, have ownership and are uh, being recognized for their work and um, that we're all being kind of collaborative on, on, you know, uh, improving, you know, the restaurant, what we're doing, how we're doing it, the environment, things like that. 
and get everyone on. That's really interesting. Maybe that's sort of what I was asking earlier too, in terms of just like the psychology of, of trying to get people to do good work for you or to be on the same, have the same enthusiasm for what you're doing mm-hmm. that you do. And so that, so that was a difference you feel like going from Ubuntu to Rustic Canyon was in terms of the morale or in terms of the, the mood of the people working there. Is that sort of, that was really important to me. Yeah. You know, I felt like, you know, the food would taste better from people who were happy and the service would be better from people who are happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the fact that, um, you know, it forced me to kind of change my cooking and to, um, be able to, um, articulate my ideas better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it, at the same time I was also, you know, I started working on finishing my cookbook, which kind of forced me to standardize my cooking in to some extent. So, not every dish was based on me making it and the way it felt to me um, or else I would have to make it every single time, every single day. Was that how it was at Ubuntu was you'd have to make it was, there were no recipes really other than like pizza dough. There were, there were no recipes for anything. So, you know, every dish was kind of here today, gone tomorrow. There wasn't really time to Mm. make a recipe because it was all based on what we were getting from the, from the farm. So even, you know, at Rustic, it was based on the farmer's market. So you at least had kind of a window of this will be available for this amount of time. And, um, you know, whether it was a sauce or a technique, it was important to teach other people how, how to do it as well. So it wasn't just me. Well, it makes me think a little bit, a bit about control because it seems like if you're, a, you know, an artistic person, you know, you want to be in control of what you're doing. You want to control the level of Sure. Salt and the level of... But it was actually more rewarding to see other people um, recreate it, if not even improve on, on the original. Mm-hmm. Um, and to actually see kind of a progress to where where I would have to really explain something, you know, in the beginning to um, just be like, I'm thinking this, 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 and be like, boom, I got it. Let me go make it. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, to kind of build that language with people. So when you... So in the period between... Um, Rustic, I'm sorry, uh, Ubuntu, leaving Ubuntu or it closing and then starting Rustic Canyon. I mean, was, were you sort of confronting who you wanted to be as a chef and like what your sure. goals were? Yeah. And, you know, deciding whether I even wanted to be a chef or um, was equipped to be a chef anymore. Mm-hmm. What, what had driven you to become a chef at the beginning? I don't know. I, I went to culinary school because I always, for some reason I was always drawn to restaurants because I think cause mm-hmm. they were kind of um, so many like great memories of like time with family were, were at restaurants. So I think that's where I gravitated towards. I just wanted to have some experience in the kitchen so I wouldn't be completely uh, ignorant of what was happening in, you know, a whole part of the restaurant. And then once I started doing that, I just felt like, okay, well, I, don't think I want to be out in the dining room. I, I want to be in the kitchen. <laughs> I read in your, um, in the book, you, t- you mentioned seeing the movie big night with Stanley Tucci. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember seeing that too. And that definitely had a huge impact on me, but that sounds like it had a huge impact on you. Yeah, too. for sure. What um, about it? Did you like so much? I think just the, I mean, it was shot just great, but the, the, um, the, the f- pictures or, you know, wh- whether it was Mark Anthony frying a, or not Mark Anthony. No, yeah, it was actually Stanley Tucci who was frying the egg at the end. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he sat down with Mark Anthony and Tony Shalhoub. But 
just like that, like two minute scene. Oh yeah. Um, the them, final shot. With them making the omelet, you yeah. know, um, and just seeing the, the reactions on, you know, the dinner guests when all these things came out to the table and mm-hmm. uh, how they were just getting drunk and falling asleep. Like it, it would, it just it seemed like food could have such an impact on, on people. Whereas anything I'd kind of thought I might be set up to do, whether, you know, as growing up, whether it was going to be a lawyer or, you know, a teacher or an accountant, didn't really feel like those would have, well, a teacher, I think you can definitely have a major impact on right. people. Um, you like the idea. But it seems of, so immediate. Yeah, the community, the sense of being mm-hmm. a part of something. I mean, are you the kind of chef that likes to go out into the dining room of your restaurant and walk around and talk to customers? Or do you, do you prefer to be in the kitchen? Um, at Birdie G's, I, I, I'm actually, I am in dining room a lot more than... Um, I was pretty much never in the dining room at, at Russet Canyon. It was a closed kitchen, so mm-hmm. that was one of the major reasons. But it's just great to see, since Birdie G's is an open kitchen, I can see people eating. I can mm-hmm. see reactions. I can feel the energy. Um, whereas not just kind of gauging, you know, the energy of the restaurant on uh, the sound of the ticket machine and how many, you know, how many how much paper was coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to, you know, if I see someone kind of... Um, like really enjoying something like very obvious. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to, um, I'll try to talk to them or, um, if there's a special occasion, I just, you know, I think more and more I'll get more comfortable with, um, uh, being even more social, but I also think like, eh, these people are here for dinner. They don't necessarily, they're not here to talk to me. So, well, it's funny. Cause I, I keep thinking of Wolfgang Puck. Cause like his whole thing, anytime I've well, ever sure. been to his restaurant, it's like he goes from table to table and it's, it's sort of almost like it feels like an old fashioned idea of like the chef, like coming out and it does. hanging it does. out with people. But do you feel, I mean, I, I'm just going to guess here, but do you, are you more of an introvert than an extrovert? Cause I'm getting more of introverted vibes. Oh yeah. I'm <laughs> completely an introvert. Yeah. yeah. But do you feel like most chefs are introverted or most chefs are extroverted or it's just a mixture? Of it's, the probably, it's a mixture. Yeah. Because it does, do you, but do you feel like, I mean, there's probably a whole side to this industry. I mean, it's weird cause I feel I'm sitting here, with you and my my background is like food blogging and like I'm, I almost feel like I'm the enemy maybe secretly in the world of chef because it's like there's a part of being a chef where you have to like network and like you know you have to worry about getting your message out there and getting things out there but I also feel like you have obnoxious people like me coming to the restaurant and thinking they're critics and that you know just, there's a whole culture of I'm just saying there's just like this whole culture of socialization or networking that feels I think like I, I felt that way in the beginning you know I, yeah. I think you know in the like mid two thousands, you know, an e gullet. You remember yeah, e gullet? That's where I started. And, yeah. And so like you would, people would come in to eat when I was at Manresa, and then like write reviews, like or take things. I was like, who are these people? Like, <laughs> yeah. So it, I was I think, one of them. <laughs> I think for a while I kind of felt like, you know, bloggers and writers were the enemy, and then, um, you know, when I was in my twenties, and then, you know, just started seeing that it's it's about appreciation and. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of, uh, useful, crit- usefulness to the critiques. Like I, I read Yelp. Do um, you read Yelp? I was going to ask you that. You know, I take it all with a grain of salt, but you know, if there's a pattern with, with what, you know, some critiques are, whether they're good or bad, it, it's good to, it's good to notice that. Um, mm-hmm. so if, if there's people that are raving about something at the restaurant and you didn't realize that was such a, a such a, a raveable thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Well, let's 
okay, well, we're going to keep that on the menu. Or if, 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 you know, there's a consistent thing where there's a service issue or, or a food issue, if, if a dish isn't going over, um, that helps to kind of get a little bit of clarity because we kind of live in a little bubble. I'm curious, like as a chef, like knowing what like the average person likes to eat, or like like I'm just thinking for some reason of like the Cheesecake Factory or just like big like gi- giant institutions or it's just like gloppy like big plates of food. Mm-hmm. Like knowing that the average person in America probably would just be happy having that, and then you're serving them a plate of like beautifully executed and thought about you know vegetables that have been painstakingly you know prepared and put you know organized and 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 everything is put you put so much thought into it how do you explain to somebody why yours is you know more worthwhile i mean i i is that that something you have to think about no i'm and i i definitely don't do that because if um if I have to, exp- it's like explaining, if I have to explain a joke to someone, it's mm-hmm. not really funny. Yeah. So if I have to explain why this is good, yeah. then it's, then it's not there yet. You know, pe- people like what they like. There's mm-hmm. certain things that, you know, we're all kind of, we all kind of gravitate towards. So, you know, Cheesecake Factory is amazing for, you know, what it is. It, yeah. And, you know, it, I know David Chang thinks it's the best restaurant in America, right? Or, or I think that's Hillstone. Oh, Hillstone. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Hillstone is pretty amazing. Hillstone is amazing. Yeah. Um, Those are all, it's fascinating. Cause it's like, I, I struggle with this too. Cause I'll bring like my dad is a great example. Like my dad would loves a steakhouse. He loves potatoes, steak, you know, uh, Cream spinach. Um, so do I. Yeah, all this stuff. But if I took him to Rustic Kenya, I think he would he would he would like it and enjoy it. But he, I would probably have to really work to be like, hey, you know, this is good because bubble. You know, I, I think some people, it's like they just want the the basics and the, the standards. And and I guess I'm asking, is it frustrating for you to deal with that? Or no, I, I think I I kind of, I recognize what that, that is and that how you know, you know the food that I cook, you know sometimes does need a little context in order mm-hmm. to maybe fully appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, a cheesecake factory, you don't really need any context. It's either, it's either good or it's bad, or even if it's bad, it's bad in the best way. So it, mm-hmm. you know, it's good. Right. Um, I mean, you seem like, like a, like a, like a regular guy who's in a very rarefied world, right? I mean, you know, I'm from, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio right? Know, like, to be, um, you know, Cooking amazing ingredients in California is uh, probably the furthest thing I ever expected as a kid. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I find myself very fortunate and, and uh, lucky to be here. But in terms of, I'm just thinking of audience. Like, you know, I mean, it, it almost feel, it almost feels like Birdie G's is is a move to like cook more for you know a broader audience in a way too, right? Or, I think it's it's the food that I. You know, I, I think there's difference. I have different styles of of mm-hmm. cooking and, and and the food I like. And um, um, this is kind of an opportunity to to kind of keep both styles going um, mm-hmm. in like these parallel lives. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Barty G's is kind of if I if you know if um if I were to start like a new style of Applebee's or, or cheesecake factory, but with, you know, good ingredients and paying attention to details that that's, that's what it is. Well, that's that's th- what it's inspired by. Cause that's kind of the places that I grew up yeah. um, loving because that's all I knew. 
Well, it's also interesting because it ties back to your lunch, which I kind of let go of a little bit. But it's like on your day off, you're eating, you know, halal cart, like just real, you know, the kind of food that people who are working in the middle of the day just grab and eat. And yeah, I mean, what am I supposed to eat on my day off? Like, you know, <laughs> I know, spherified I, olives. And, <laughs> you don't spherify olives for, for no. lunch on your day yeah. off. Um, well, I was going to ask you, I have like two questions. I have so many questions. I'm sorry, Jeremy. You're going to be here for hours. Um, but I was going to ask. I got to pick my daughter up in a few hours. <laughs> okay, so. no, no, I'm just kidding. You, you only have to do an hour of this and then, then it's over. Um, but I was going to ask you, what, what was the first dish you remember making? Like first, like original, like plated dish. You're like, this is an original Jeremy Fox creation. In my whole life? Sure. Whatever comes to mind. Um, probably it started with adding, adding ingredients to my frozen pizzas. Okay. Um, and that was probably eight when I started doing that. So you were at home and you, you had frozen pizzas mm-hmm. and you were like, I'm going to add something to that. Yeah. Whether it was onions or um, green peppers. Mm-hmm. This is in, you said Cincinnati or Cleveland? Cleveland. In Cleveland. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you did that, did it feel like exhilarating or? Did yeah, it... I think it did. Yeah. yeah. It, um, and yeah did... I can remember just feeling really proud and accomplished that, you know, I made I made pizza, even though I just, you know, cut up, <laughs> rudimentarily cut up a, a few vegetables and put it on top of something that was already made. But mm-hmm. And did you um, go f- immediately from that to making other food from scratch or did it take a while? No, that was kind of the extent of it. And then um, probably senior, senior year of high school, um, my mom was traveling a lot for, for work. So she kind of, she gave me a, an allowance to, to feed myself and, um, around the same time, this kind of upscale market called Harris Teeter mm-hmm. opened up, um, you know, a mile from our house in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, you know, where I had go- kind of been used to like Kroger and very like mundane sort of things. Harris Teeter all of a sudden had like jars of aioli. I didn't mm-hmm. even know what aioli was. And, um, you know, prepared foods were different. They had, you know, better, better protein options. So I started kind of cooking for myself at home and experimenting. And and what was the landscape for you growing up um, food oriented? I mean, did your parents cook for you? Did you not really? Okay. No. I think my, my dad and my mom, they both had like a couple things they did, mm-hmm. you know, um, signature dishes, but for the most part, um, yeah, not, not a whole lot, a lot of, um, a lot of frozen food, a lot of um, fast food. What were their signature dishes? So my dad would make, um, he did a really good schnitzel. Okay. Um, like, like this zucchini. Uh, it was probably pork, yeah. Okay. Pork or chicken. Um, this kind of like zucchini casserole, like tomato casserole, huh. and then like a breakfast scramble. Those all sound really good. Yeah. My mom, she did um, like lemon pepper chicken. Um, like pork stuffed with garlic cloves. Okay, so they're not like like dumping a box of mac and cheese. No, they it. had a, they had a few few tricks up their sleeve. What was their what's your what are their backgrounds? I mean, where is is Fox a Jewish? Are you Jewish? Oh yeah, yeah, one hundred and seven percent. Okay, and with the matzo ball soup and stuff, I mean, I'm kind of putting. Okay, so you, that was yeah, I, that would be really bad appropriation of me. But um, <laughs> so you grew up in a Jewish family in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Uh, so my my dad's side is from 
Hungary and my mom's side's from Russia. Okay, so that's why your dad's doing schnitzel. Is that Hungarian? No, I guess that's more like Austrian. Yeah, but he he was also stationed in Germany in the in um uh in the Vietnam War, so okay. I think he may have picked up a couple things over there as well. So you're growing up in your Jewish household, playing with pizza and doing all this stuff, but but the idea of going to culinary school that kicked in way later. Like it was not like he grew up like I'm going to be a chef someday. No, I thought if anything I was going to be an English teacher. And uh-huh. you know, I went to Georgia State for a couple years after high school. Mm-hmm. Um, Did they, you love reading and books and all that stuff? No, <laughs> I liked writing. Okay, um, but I, I didn't like reading. I, I I think it was kind of the thing where I just I just like creating, and, mm-hmm. and I don't really care too much about other creations, really. Yeah. So. It's funny when you say you like creating. I, when you were talking about your life in Ubuntu, um, just like not having recipes and just coming up with things on the spot, I just had this this image of like like Picasso or like a painter in the in the kitchen, just like painting paintings and like sending them out to people. You know, just like, it felt a little frenetic and crazy like that for sure. But also just like being forced to be creative mm-hmm. on demand for people, like you know, the angry hordes who want your, especially being forced to be creative. Um, without the use of uh animal um oh, right. which, which was drove me even more into like this rabbit hole did you have to, when, when when things got super crazy were you sending out dishes where you were like i don't even know what that is i just i'm putting that on the plate because i gotta get something out there no no i think <laughs> you stayed on top of it yeah i mean whether i had to stay overnight and not sleep to do it you yeah. know i it still it still happened did you have ones that you thought would be big hits that people were just like no we're not eating that combination of things or it was always pretty successful it was always fairly successful i you know i think if if there had also been you know meat and fish thrown at the time there probably would have been a little bit more off the wall things but you know there's there's not a whole lot vegetable wise that is kind of squirrely that would scare people i think in the movie big night where tony shalhoub like sees a customer uh, doesn't eat their risotto and like sends it back to the kitchen. Like, how do you handle moments like that where somebody's like, you know, this is too salty and you know that it's not, or this, this, I asked for a bubble, you know, or do you take it personally when somebody sends something back? No, I used to, but yeah. you know, I'm 43 now. I've been cooking more than half my life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, I want people to be happy. And so when, when food comes back to the kitchen, cause it does, um, I, I always try it, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's on the edge. Maybe the, you know for them it might have been salty, or sometimes I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that was really salty. We messed up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's perfect. Um, but not, I'm not going to go out there and say, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, well, can we get you something else? Can yeah. we, how can we make you happy? It's funny. I was listening to this other podcast. It's with this therapist named Esther Perel. Um, and it's like couples therapy basically, but she said this thing, like if you make a dish for your partner and they say it's too salty, it doesn't matter if it is too salty. It's like they perceive it as salty and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about that. It's more about understanding what they're experiencing, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of profound. Like, Oh, everyone's gauge of what reality is, is different. I guess. I had a guest send back, um, her beef tongue a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, I know it's beef tongue. It just looked too much like beef tongue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, 
I can't imagine. You have to have such a high tolerance doing what you do. I mean, you really must have to put up with a lot, especially with Yelp, with people. I mean, on, on the flip side, yes, it's, it's, I'm sure there's lots of gracious people who, who are For sure. great customers and wonderful. Very rarely are there, are there, you know, guests who are just horrible. It does happen. You've never met my family then, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, we have guests that come in and they're like, you can be picky about the food, but... You know, when you start um, kind of abusing the staff, right. you know, and being rude and um, that there's no room for that. Like you can not like my food, but, you know, don't like, you know, snap at a at a at a server or a or a busser, you know. Right. I have a question. What about the um, this Instagram age that we're living in? Has that changed how you plate food and think about the way food looks? Because, you know, people are going to maybe like take pictures of it and put it on the Internet. Or has that not really had an impact on it? Um, like the dessert at Birdie G's was like built for Instagram, right? It's like a jello. It has like, what is it? I mean, for sure. Yeah. It, it, it definitely has become that. I think, um, I definitely just had a picture of, I had a vision of what this thing would look like. And what's it called again? It's a, it's called the rose petal pie, rose petal pie. And people should look it up if they haven't seen it yet. Cause it's pretty beautiful. It's pretty, it's all these shades of pink and it's actually really delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a cross between, um, two Midwest things, one of which is a stained glass pie mm -hmm. and one, uh, um, in the Midwest is called strawberry pretzel salad, even though it's not a salad, but it's like a strawberry pie with a pretzel crust. So this is, mm -hmm. um, a stained glass pie with different, uh, red fruits, um, with a pretzel crust and candied rose petals and a little bit of rose in the custard. And you had to know that that looked pretty good when you sliced into it the first time. You're like, this oh, is, yeah. is yeah. going to go viral. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, it's, it's funny. I, um, for the desserts at Bertie G's, I, um, my ex-wife consulted on the, on the desserts and, mm -hmm. um, just cause I knew like her desserts were exactly what we needed there. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing. It's this and this, and it, I kind of see like all these pinks and she's like, okay, let me see what I can do. And it's like, she nailed it. Like, um, and we've kind of just like slightly tweaked it from there as we've been open but um where are you when that happens i'm so curious like you said what you just described was sort of what i was asking about earlier like that moment of inspiration i mean were you just like laying in bed and suddenly you had an image in your head of i don't know pie or i go through i go through periods of of creativity and and lack of creativity it's mm -hmm. ebbs and flows and um you know i try to i try to recognize when i'm having you know these periods of creativity and mm -hmm. and try to focus and get as much output as I can from the, from the time. And then I know not to be hard on myself in the, in the times that I don't feel creative. And at those times I kind of focus on the basics um, mm -hmm. and say, okay, well let's make sure this aioli needs to be great every day. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, so if I'm not thinking about something creative and new and wonderful, mm -hmm. let's make sure that what we're doing is, is excellent. So it's like those two times kind of balance things out. It's interesting because looking at your book, like one of the things I was thinking was that it, like there's a there's a looseness, like in a playfulness to the ideas, but there's also this incredible precision and exactness to everything too, which seems like what you're talking about, right? That there's like the imagination that goes into the dish, and then there's the execution. Yeah, for dish. sure. Because you know, more than anything, I want I want the people to come back and enjoy the food and 
and know that like they come back again, it's going to, it's still going to be good. Mm -hmm. So they can't necessarily be prone to my kind of fits of creativity and mad scientist uh, tendencies. Right. Um, you know, I have to kind of be strategic and smart about it. So I was going to ask though, so your first dish you ever created at home was a pizza, but what with, with peppers and stuff, but when you were in the restaurant, I mean, you were at Manresa, was there a night, I mean, do you remember distinctly the night, whether it was at Manresa or Ubuntu where you, you created, like you plated your first plated dish? I remember one dish in particular at Manresa. Um, this was while I was chef de cuisine, but we had, um, you know, there were, when vegetarians would come in, I would kind of um, create dishes for them on the spot to kind of go with their, with what their other pers- other guests might be having on mm-hmm. the, that was not vegetarian. And I remember, I think one time I did kind of this braised black radish with porcini. That's kind of all I remember. And I was like, oh, that was kind of good. And then <laughs> they ended up writing a letter to the restaurant saying how, you know, they go to restaurants and when they're, you know, especially like tasting menu restaurants and when they're vegetarian, they get something kind of uninspired and mm-hmm. that they felt really special. And they felt like there was a lot of thought and love put into their food and they really appreciate it. So I was like, Oh, I kind of like this vegetable thing. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so like that's your thing is vegetables, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's your name it, of your book, right? It's, I mean, it's one of my things. <laughs> right. But, so is, but where did that, did that start at Manresa or did that start? Earlier? Yeah. That, I think, stemmed from kind of an obsession with pork and utilizing all the parts of the pork, the charcuterie and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, um, nose to tail cooking kind of, um, segued into the seed to stock cooking of, of using every part of the plant and mm-hmm. seeing the, the challenge and inspiration there. So would you scream at me if I told you that I cut the tops off my beets and throw them away, the greens? Scream no, maybe maybe a disapproving, uh, you know, head shake. But are are you one of those chefs that goes through the kitchen and like looks in the trash can, like, hey, who threw out these celery leaves? Like, who threw out the? Honestly, everyone at the restaurant, like, I, I think it's not just you know my places, but I think in the industry, using the scraps has become such a thing mm-hmm. that um, I don't necessarily have to police that anymore. You right. know, everyone is everyone's eyes are open to that. Uh, everyone kind of hoards things now. Do you really try to use everything? Try, yeah, like yeah. beet. If I, if I like peel the beet, like would you use the peel? The peels. I mean, if you had enough of it, you could definitely think think of something. Whether it's like making you know beet peel ash or beet peel ash. Well, I mean, you can make ash with everything. <laughs> just burn it. Just burn it. Okay. Um, but it, it's a matter of. of thinking about things to kind of cross utilize different parts of, of the item, whether it's meat or, or, um, vegetable, mm-hmm. um, uh, for, you know, lots of things to pay respect to the, to the product, to, um, uh, educate the, the, the staff to save money, you know, all those. And all sustainability those now too mm-hmm. is such a big subject. Yeah. But I mean, are there things, I'm, I'm just curious, is it all trial by error, trial and error? Like when you get a vegetable in like carrot tops, I know you can make pesto, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like, what's like a, what's part of a vegetable that is inedible, like, or things that you've tried to eat before you're like, this is just never going to fly. I mean, are all vegetables completely edible from root to tail? Truly? Um, I mean, you can always make, you know, vegetable powders, you know, yeah. by, you know, drying out the, 
any tough parts of the vegetable, whether it's like there's certain parts of the stalks of fennel that are, um, um, you know, two fibers to eat, but mm-hmm. you can, we, we make a lot of fennel stock and use that as that's kind of our, our vegetable stock is fennel stock. So, oh, yeah. um, I like fennel. Yeah. But I have a question. Is there a food that you don't like? Lots of foods I don't like. Like what? Uh, I don't really like, um, winter squash. Really? Or, All winter squash? Or sweet potatoes or oh, pumpkin. Because they're mealy? Or? Just the, the, the flavor. I can eat like, I can always eat like squash raviolis with brown butter and sage. Like that's that or like a sweet um, thing, like a, like a pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie. I can eat that, but like just like roasted butternut squash on a plate. Like I have no desire to to eat that. I mean, it feels like a whole category that you're kind of like swiping aside here. I mean, sweet potatoes, pumpkin. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like a whole, a lot of chefs are using those things. I mean, I use them. I use them a lot, you know, some, Oh, you just don't like them. I just don't really like them. Wow. Um, okay. What else don't you like? Um, I mean, I don't like durian, but that doesn't really come up in my daily life very often. Do you not like the taste or the smell. I know it's everything, everything. It repulsed me for sure. Okay. For those who don't know, durian kind of smells like rancid sewage, right? I, I mean, that's, a, that's not like an offensive thing to say. It's like pretty no, much acknowledge that that's what it smells like, but then it's supposed to taste good, right? I don't think it tastes good, but <laughs> that's, that's just me. Okay, so durian and squash are the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your lunch just for a second. So when you're eating lunch at work, are you eating a lunch or do you mostly just snack on what you're cooking? Uh, usually just snack on, on what we're cooking. You know, there's um, family meal, um, at Rustic, it was always at uh, um, four o'clock, uh, four thirty. But um, it uh, it pretty Jesus at the end of the night. Okay. So there's always there's always something good at some point of the day. But mm-hmm. it, there is a lot of tasting, and you know, I realize I get a lot of calories just by tasting everything. Right. So is that does that sustain you? I mean, for the most part, yeah. So you can you, you get up in the morning on a day where you're working, mm-hmm. and do you eat breakfast? No, not usually. Usually just coffee. So you have coffee, you head out for the day. What time are you going, getting into these restaurants? Uh, I drop Bertie off at nine and then I head to the restaurant. So I usually get there around 10. Okay. So it's not like you're getting up at like five in the morning no. to start like well, peeling vegetables and things. Yeah. No, I mean, usually we're up between six and seven. Okay. So you go to the restaurant at 10 and then you start, I mean, I'm just trying to get a, like a sense, you know, when you're a chef and you go in there and are you just, it's like all the prep work is happening for that evening service. Mm-hmm. And you're, how often are you changing the menus at your restaurants? Is it pretty frequent or? Um, at Rustic Canyon, that menu always changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Birdie G's, it's a huge menu and we've definitely changed probably about 20% of it since we opened, if not even more, mm-hmm. but that's kind of, we're centering in on kind of our core menu that, um, is the is birdie juice yeah and but when you're in there working in the morning in the in, in your restaurant is it mostly just executing all the elements of the dishes that need to be assembled later on is that sort of what most of the work is right unless there's you know a new dish then i'll, I'll run through you know i kind of will prep out any new dish and all the components so that i can kind of work out any kinks mm-hmm. um make any changes it just seems a lot, um, a lot more efficient than to 
kind of give every dish to someone to say, this is what I'm thinking, make it, mm -hmm. see if it, see if I like it. Um, then I can just kind of hone in on, on what's right about it, what's wrong with it and um, get it dialed in as soon as, as quickly as possible. And are you kind of like walking around and like watching as somebody's like whisking the aioli and some or pounding or whatever, however you do aioli, but um, mm -hmm. and you're watching people poach thing. I mean, you're just sort of watching what's happening and you're sort of saying, Hey, that's a lot of salt you just put in there. Or, Hey, that's a little too much liquid. I mean, you're sort of monitoring what's going yeah, on. Yeah. I, it, you know, some of that also, you know, seeing how people are working and showing them um, a cleaner way to do something, a more efficient way to do things, a more uh, um, refined way of doing something. What's uh, an example? I mean, what's a, what's a, what's the most common like rookie mistake for someone who comes to work in your kitchen What's something that you see a lot that you, it's, it's like something that you correct pretty quickly or like, is there, is there one that comes immediately to mind or? Well, the, the first thing that people learn is, is how to set up their work area. Mm -hmm. um, and that's with tasting spoons. Um, I think for dirty spoons, their tools, towels, um, and the towels have to all be folded a certain way, uh, the same way everybody. So why? Um, it's just, and it's the same thing with like cutting tape. We cut tape with scissors. We never tear tape. If I see someone and their, their towels are always folded properly, um, and they're cutting tape with scissors, their station looks, looks, you know, organized and clean. You know, I, it gives me a lot of faith that they're doing things right. But if hmm. we've, if I've been very clear about this is how we do it, this is how we fold towels and their towels aren't folded, they're folded, you know, without any care and they're wrong, they're, you know, seams up instead of seams down. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, well, they're probably doing cutting corners other places wow. and, and not focusing um, in other areas too. So they're kind of just kind of like red flags. It almost makes me think of like making your bed in the military, like how if you're a good soldier, you make a good bed, mm -hmm. you know, you can bounce a coin on it. So yeah. it's sort of like you're looking for good soldiers in your brigade. Or is that yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, well, we're reaching the end. I know that <laughs> you've been a good sport throughout all of this, but at the end of every podcast, I ask, um, what are you having for dinner tonight? I think we're having uh, smoked pulled pork and uh, slaw. And, are you, and is Rachel making that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she already smoked the pork. Um, you guys have a smoker? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, we have a, a Traeger grill smoker. Um, so she, yeah, she smoked this uh, yesterday or the day before. So mm -hmm. she, you know, pulled all the meat and doing like a slaw with peanuts and fish sauce. And yeah, it's going to be good. How do you handle it in your relationship? I mean, this happens in every couple, no matter if you're a chef or not a chef, but if you um, taste her food and you think something is off and you think like, Ooh, this is, this is, pork is too dry. This slaw, the mayo is rancid. I mean, is that something that goes over pretty easily coming from you? Cause I would imagine like probably very sensitive I, Rachel's never been intimidated by, <laughs> okay. by me in that respect. So, yeah. um, you know, she gives me plenty of, um, um, critiques on, on the food, whether it's something I make or something in the, at the restaurant, you know, when, mm -hmm. you know, when the, if the beet soil wasn't right, she would, she would say something. Or when I decided to take the beet soil off the beet salad, she was like, I liked it. I liked it better with the beet soil. So you, you guys give each other good feedback and you're not, it sounds like you, you, throughout you've, you've maintained and I'm impressed to hear that you're not super sensitive to feedback. It sounds like. No, I mean, I, 
you can't be or else you're not going to really be objective. Yeah. So you guys are good about giving each other notes. and Yeah, just because just I say something's good doesn't mean it's good. Also, the context is very different, too. I guess when you're home and somebody's making you a, a beautiful dinner out of the goodness of their heart versus when you're in a restaurant and you're selling something to people, you're going to be paying for it. And- yeah, I'm not eating a, something that Rachel made and just going down a laundry list of things I would do different or wrong. It's she's like, do you think it's a little salty? I'm like, yeah, it's a little salty. And does she have a towel folded on her counter next to where she's cooking? Uh, yes, actually. She really does. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a lot of kitchen towels just accidentally taking them home in my apron. So uh-huh. we have, we have a good amount at home. And is it just to like wipe things up and like wipe plates and like wipe things? And to handle, uh, um, hot pans. I never get that. I see that on TV all the time and chefs are like, you just use a towel, but I always burn myself. Well, if it's dry, Oh, it's and, and it's thick enough, then it'll be fine. Dry is key because I once got my oven mitt really wet and like yeah, burned the yeah, hell out of my hand. That that water just conducts all the heat, and it it'll it'll be worse than a it'll be a steam burn mixed with a hot burn. So oh yeah, I've had that. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Over. Thanks for having me. This is great. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Elsie Granderson. And I'm Will Leach. Every week in The Long Game, we look at the biggest stories in sports and how they affect the world of culture and politics. You think COVID has messed up sports forever? I think sports has totally forgotten that COVID ever existed. You think legal betting is bad for sports? I know it's bad for me to bet on the Pistons. That's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> Who is the most entitled GOAT of all time? I feel like there's a hundred-way tie for first. Well, at least at first. That's why they're the GOATs. We love talking about sports. And because we love our sports, we want our sports to be better. Which is why we don't dodge those big, messy issues. And we certainly do not stick to sports. So join us for deep thoughts, great laughs, and a weekly breakdown of the biggest issues in sports. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Find us on the ACAST app, Twitch, and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, ACAST, ACAST recommends. recommends.